VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. This is the Game Football Podcast from The Times. Today, Manchester United and Newcastle make it through to the Carabao Cup final, but which club is it most important for? We'll be talking Chelsea after they break a British transfer record for Enzo Fernandez. Is it good or bad for football? We'll also be talking about Everton and their so-called dereliction of duty after signing nobody in January. And we'll talk about the winners and losers of the transfer window. This is The Game. Hello, welcome to the Game Podcast. I am Hugh Wizencroft alongside Tom Ornett, Gregor Robertson and James Restall. Let's start with the week's live action. The Carabao Cup finalists have been confirmed on their way to Wembley. Are Manchester United, whose 2-0 semi-final second leg win at Old Trafford took them past Nottingham Forest 5-0 on aggregate. Newcastle beat Southampton three goals to one at home. They go through full one on aggregate. Uh, whilst the Baron run doesn't really compare to Newcastle's, Manchester United know that if they fail to win a trophy this season, it will be their longest run without silverware since the nine years after they won the European Cup back in 1968. This final is a repeat of Newcastle's last major domestic final, the 1999 FA Cup final. Man United won that 2-0. But remember, the Magpies haven't won a domestic trophy since 1955. So, Tom Orner, I'll start with you. Which club will this be a bigger final for? Oof. I mean, I think probably for Newcastle, it feels like it's uh, an even an even bigger deal than it is for Man United. But I have to say that I think for either club to win this trophy would be a massive thing. I, I remember, you know, the League Cup being one of the first trophies that you know Manchester City won, and, and they kind of said that was. A, I remember Carl Walker sort of saying that was a, a, a huge, a huge step for for the club in, in sort of becoming that the sort of trophy winning machine that we know they are. You know, I think if if Newcastle won this tournament, I mean, it would almost be a little bit ahead of time. You know, I, th- I feel like maybe this season we weren't expecting Newcastle to sort of be challenging for trophies, um, but they've been, you know, even better than I think we we sort of thought they would be all the way through, right in the league, and now also in the cup for Manchester United. I mean, this would be a, a huge statement for for Ten Hag as well. You know, I think the work that he's done this season, it's it's clear for everyone to see that there's there's progress. We know, you know, even a couple of weeks ago, we were sort of talking about possibly Manchester United being in the title race. Perhaps that's not, they're not quite ready for that. But I think for them as well, you know, to win a trophy would just give the players, you know, huge belief and give the give the club as a whole a, a massive lift as well. I mean, seeing the scenes at St. James's Park afterwards, I'd have to concur. I think this would be, it's going to be enormous for Newcastle and their fans and the club as a whole to be at Wembley um, just to get a glimpse of of the future and it is definitely ahead of of, uh, of schedule I mean to watch them that first opening in 20 minutes they were 
they were irresistible. They kind of tore, they just tore into Southampton and the goals were brilliant too. I mean, the first goal of the week, Gamaris kind of shifted it and managed to buy the space to play the switch and then Longstaff timed his run in the second goal. Beautifully worked, kind of moved down the left and they're so kind of dynamic around the front foot. So Newcastle have been, you know, there's so much discussion around around the takeover and what it means for English football and what it means for Newcastle. But the job Eddie Howe has done and is doing there is 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 remarkable. And um, I think if they were to win the win the League Cup, it would just be an absolutely momentous moment for Newcastle and their fans and the club. And as I say, definitely, definitely ahead of schedule. Yeah, but there's a part of me that thinks it would be almost less momentous in three years' time after they've won, you know, four more trophies. No. <laughs> no, I remember when City won the FA Cup in, I think, 2011, and that was that was kind of one of the... I think that might have been the first one that they, they won under their new ownership, and it was seen as a real kind of flag in the sand moment that they were there they were you know they they were they were a force and it's almost you know regardless of how significant the league cup is or isn't it still will be it's still a a sign that they are ready to win silverware and ready to challenge um it, it's a difficult one because I think I was thinking: is is there a worse final for the neutral fan? I just remember, you know, in the in the in the um, you know, I remember in the nineties the the old you know anyone but United brigade. You know, there, there's probably quite a few anyone but Newcastle's as well at the moment because of because of their owners. Um, and and I think um, I think it's going to be tricky. So you've got to viewing it from that side. There will be a lot of people who want neither team to win, um, but uh, but at the but 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 but, but equally, um, fans don't choose who owns their club, and the, the the fans of Newcastle United have had to wait. There have been generations of fans that have not seen them win anything major. Um, I think back to you know friends of mine who are Newcastle fans who say that their favourite seasons in recent years have been the years when they were in the championship because they won every game they got to go to lots of new away grounds and they won the, and they you know they they won the division and it was there was it, there was actually seeing the club win something and there was a bit of a feel good atmosphere around St James's Park St James's Park is transformed um since this since this takeover there is a real buzz a real optimism um and you know i think if they if they do win it i would not begrudge them um the 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 great success that they've waited so long for. I had a mate who went to the uh, the second leg, could only get himself a ticket, and he said, every Newcastle game under Mike Ashley, you bring up three mates, you know, they just call the club, get four tickets, sitting together, mm. you know, they'd always be able to go to whatever matches they want. Lives down south, obviously, just to point that out. <laughs> Hasn't got a season ticket at the moment, but he says, basically now, it's hell. He has to go up there on his own, just having bought a single ticket for himself. So there you go, shows you a a shift even if it's anecdotal but yeah I do think it's a big one for Manchester United as well I do think absolutely. it is absolutely it is because Eric Ten Hag by the way has just got to Manchester United uh, and he wanted to re-establish a winning culture he has the opportunity now to win a trophy in his opening season the first possible trophy he could win as well lay down a marker I actually think with the, uh, the the deeper you get into the season as well I think the fact that Manchester United squad isn't quite there becomes more obvious and um, the fact that you can win a trophy with a squad that isn't really quite there, and I know Newcastle aren't exactly the finished article either, but would be seen as a big thing for Eric Tentag to have done. It's very hard to call. I mean, we've spoken about Newcastle's defensive record, a bullet of a strike from, by, by Che Adams, they kind of, you know, is a rare goal, real, blem- real blemish for them. And, you know, they're, they're tied on points in, in the Premier League. That's going to be, I mean, it's very hard to call. Like I say, I just think if Newcastle Newcastle's defensive record is so, so remarkable that, 
it, I think they've got a very good chance. I know you won't like to hear that, Hugh, but I think they absolutely. I think, they absolutely I, think it, I think it's impossible to call yeah. this match. They're very even. They drew nil nil in the Premier League not too long ago, didn't they? Um, this has got nil nil and pens written all over. I, 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 I just want to say that I tend to I tend to agree with you on that one. I did want to ask you guys whether you think, and I'll, I'll come to you on this, Tom, whether this is an important final for the EFL Cup as a whole. Lots of talk about a new deal for football on the horizon. Independent regulators clearly restructuring to the way that football works. But um, one of the headlines in all of those headlines is that European teams may be excluded from the EFL Cup completely. So you wouldn't have a Manchester United in this final, for example, given that they're in European competition. And ultimately, whether it can survive then without those big teams in it. I mean, it might just be Champions League sides that get excluded, but we're likely to have five of those very, very soon. So... How important is it that we're seeing these two clubs actually really care about lifting this trophy? And how important is that in terms of a fillet for this competition? Yeah, I mean, I think if they took out the big teams of the EFL Cup, I think it would it would be the final nail in the coffin, really. I mean, it effectively then becomes like a, like a B-team league almost. I'm sure the rest of the clubs would just automatically start using it as a competition to, to not even really play fringe players, but to sort of try out youngsters and... I don't really see that as a sustainable uh, model. I mean, we've seen that, you know, a lot of the other major European leagues have dispensed with the kind of second domestic cup competition just because obviously the calendar now is so, so congested. And, you know, that the, I think it probably has, as, as a result, had a bit of a boost for the, for the, for the primary, you know, domestic cup competition, which for England obviously is the FA Cup. I don't know, in, in answer to your question, you know, if one good final, if one kind of, showpiece match between two good teams is going to have an effect like that yes you know this this final means a lot to these two teams but I think we've had finals before that have meant a lot to the to the teams in the final of course you know we know Manchester City have basically cleaned up um in this competition for a long for a long time but equally you know I don't don't think one fixture is going to change the 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 overall direction of travel which is very much the domestic competitions are something that all the clubs, you know, now it's, 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 you know, been the case for, for quite a few years. I mean, you know, initially it was just kind of the top teams who would rotate their players, but now, you know, you, you see every, every team basically in the competition, you know, the championship clubs as well, you know, that they're, they're not playing their, their strongest teams and they're using it to rotate as well. The direction of travel is quite clearly that the teams just cannot keep playing the same players every single week in every single round. So I suspect something will have to change regardless really of, of this final and and and, and uh, how much it means to both teams. There's an argument that some teams will, you know, t- some uh, lots of players for top teams get their debuts in this competition, and it's kind of a first and a staging post for them, and that's the kind of merit of it going forwards. But as just just for pure spectator appeal, um, I think it will uh, it, it would absolutely kill the competition if they if they let the European sides be excluded from it because already we're seeing all the Premier League teams massively weakening their sides in the early rounds so I think even as a even even in terms of the appeal of a of a of a in inverted commas glamour tie for a lower league club it's not really because you're seeing a lot of Premier League reserves versus your team um, as Tom rightly says a lot of the championship clubs are, put, are, are playing kind of almost B teams in it anyway and I, it, it's interesting the 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 
if you look at the um, the League One and Two competition, the Checker Trade Trophy, we've already seen what's happened. Um, if you if you then introduce kind of they've introduced um, sort of effectively Premier League B teams, academy teams into that competition, I'd I'd never gone to one of those matches before, but um, a friend of mine um, supports Chelsea, and we thought it would be quite fun to watch Orient v Chelsea under twenty threes just to see what what it was like, and. Um, I was I was amazed to find that Orient's manager didn't even wasn't even on the touchline for that game. It, Paul Terry, who's our number two, um, was was on the touchline. So it was a very bizarre situation where you had Paul Terry in one dugout and John Terry in the other, and that but that was the only real bit of interest. It felt like you were watching a kind of a uh, a training match, and you you felt like this could be happening at a training ground. There were hardly any fans there. Interestingly, in the stand, you could see lots of scouts, agents. It was kind of a effectively an exercise of looking at young talent that could be could be sold signed moved on um and i think that would just be it would it would get a real b team feel the league cup um i think the only thing i think probably we are heading to a to a position where the league cup would be scrapped which would be a, a good thing in terms of easing the calendar and i think that would be true for teams at all levels but um i think the league clubs would need to be compensated because it is a it is a it is a, a, a an it's the EFL's biggest it's the EFL's biggest revenue source. So they, so I think you know one there was a story today, interestingly, and you know we, we talk you know talking about Chelsea and and how much they they've spent. There, there's there was talk as part of this review of football that there would be a, a, a like a transfer tax imposed on mm. the the Premier League clubs, and they'd have to pay I think ten percent of the of the of, of the value of transfers would have to be passed down the leagues report uh, reports in the times today saying that that's not going to be part of the white paper um that's going to be published but it could be introduced by an independent regulator I, I think i think whatever is agreed if they're going to get rid of the league cup the the league teams the the, the 72 teams should be compensated for the for that for that loss of revenue absolutely okay all right gentlemen we're going to uh, discuss plenty more before this podcast is over. Don't you worry. Up next, we'll be talking about Chelsea. But um, yes, Newcastle and Manchester United through to the Carabao Cup final. It comes at the end of this month as well, so we won't have too long to wait for it. And would it be a fairy tale? Fairy tale story for Newcastle United. We shall find out. Anyway, we'll be talking about Enzo Fernandez up next on the game podcast. Stay with us. Well, there is a new British transfer record, Enzo Fernandez, joining Chelsea for around £106 million. That surpasses, of course, the £100 million spent on Jack Grealish by Manchester City. The Argentina World Cup winner has had a meteoric rise after just half a season in Europe. Uh, the 22-year-old only returned to River Plate 18 months ago after a loan spell at Defensa y Justicia. Uh, he signed for Benfica last summer, scored four goals, got seven assists in 29 games in European football and moves for £105.6 million. Unbelievable. Uh, we'll talk about that meteoric rise with Tom Ulner in a moment, who's written about it in The Times. But we know Tom Roddy has followed Chelsea and this story very closely. He joins us very quickly on the game podcast. Tom, just tell us uh, how this all came about on that final day. In fact, the final few days as this move kind of went back and forth between Rui Costa at Benfica and Chelsea? Yeah, these were really quite fractious negotiations um, that went on for, for quite a long time. And in the the, the final minutes, uh, final couple of hours when the deal was actually done, when Rui Costa, and really quite enraged Rui Costa, um, relented 
on his stance that Enzo Fernandez wasn't for sale. Um, there was about 90 minutes remaining. There was actually a, a few quite funny obstacles that when you, when you think this was a British transfer record uh, etched into history, this, this piece of business, it, it almost fell down at the final hurdle because one of the obstacles they had to get over was that Enzo Fernandez's agent from Argentina wasn't actually registered as an agent with the FA. So they had to get the pay the six hundred pound five hundred plus VAT fee to to register with the FA so late on. So when you think this hundred and six million pound deal nearly tripped up through a six hundred pound fee. But this this was something that had been in the in the last few hours there was kind of a disappearing faith that this would happen because we were so late in in the window but there was a there was a quote given to me by someone quite close to the deal which i thought summed it up a little bit that said uh, in my experience Tobboli and Bedadek Bali very rarely go shopping and come back with an empty plastic bag and that kind of summed up their determination to get this deal done. And the interesting part I've kind of highlighted in a piece we've published on the Times uh, today is that there was a deal last summer that didn't work. They, they did come back with an empty plastic bag, which was Rafinha from Leeds. And... The reason I reference that and the reason it's such an important transfer or, or non-transfer in this in this story is because it was so public and Todd Bowley went to Leeds, got the deal done, were ready for Rafinha to come and then discovered actually he wasn't interested. He was never interested in going to them. He always wanted Barcelona. So now they have learned from that and they will... They will I suspect always, but certainly in this window, with all of the players they've gone to, they've secured the commitment of the player in wanting to come to Chelsea before attacking the actual um, transfer negotiations with the club. And it was with Enzo, it was right, right at the beginning, around New Year period, maybe even um, the Christmas period, that they knew he wanted it. And and to be honest, it, if... It wasn't for Enzo's involvement in this. It wouldn't have happened. There are there are three parts to this deal really that 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 mean he is a Chelsea player today and is at Chelsea today. Um, that led to this urgency. One was the availability of him coming right now, uh, and the concern that maybe in the summer he wouldn't be so easy to get uh, with other clubs fight for a midfielder in a market that's going to be quite limited and and teams desperate to get Jude Bellingham and then who, who do they not get who do they go for after that um the other thing was the story Martin Ziegler broke in the times about the UEFA's closing of the loophole on amortization the spreading of of transfer fees across these uber long contracts that Chelsea have and the third thing was Enzo's determination to do, to get it done. He he didn't want to go in the summer. He wanted to go now, and and Rui Costa finally gave him. There are kind of discussions around whether this is healthy, 
whether Chelsea are doing the right thing. I imagine they won't care. Um, it leaves their squad in quite an inflated state, doesn't it? What do you think the feeling is about this period of recruitment where we've seen Chelsea spend pretty much half of what has been spent on transfers in Europe pretty much over the last two windows? I mean, what is it, nearing £400 million? It's absolutely incredible. And what has to happen from here on out for Clearly Capital, Todd Bowley, Graham Potter? I mean, what is all of this for? Will Chelsea be targeting a return to Champions League winning uh, status, Premier League winning status? And when will that happen? Because a lot of these players are young, inexperienced, highly um, thought of and huge potential, but um, but maybe not going to be in a winning now position for a couple of years. I would be amazed if... There's, there would be a willingness to wait a couple of years. There is a feeling that they need to be patient and to be fair to the new ownership and new hierarchy at Chelsea. I think they have shown a bit of patience already because quite referenced quite often is the fact that Roman Abramovich would have probably sacked Graham Potter two or three times by now, given the, the form of Chelsea this season. So I, th- I think they are already showing that they're willing to give time and a bit of patience. But when you invest this amount of money, it's to close the gap on Manchester City soon. Um, It's to be going deep in the Champions League this season, hoping they can make a push to actually finish in the the top four, Uh, which, which slightly reflects in a way the... Chelsea of old where they would the opposite would happen they would sack instead of changing players they would sack the manager and bring in a new manager to 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 make that push this is a this is a different approach but when you spend this amount of money that's what that's what they want um as you as you said Hugh the looking forward to other markets other transfer windows this was one thing I was told was that there, there were there weren't really any conversations about players outgoings at Chelsea until five days, seven days before the transfer window closed. This was the winter window was entirely focused on strengthening the squad, and there were two real areas they wanted to focus on, which was which would benefit Graham Potter's style of play, which was fast, talented wingers and a progressive box-to-box midfielder. So they have, in the end, they did tick that with Enzo and with the um, Mudrik coming in, Noni Madueke, Xiao Felix. The next window, I I don't think, right now, I don't think we'll see the same spending, partially because they can't. Um, because of FFP, but also because, as you said, Hugh, this is an inflated squad. It's a it's a big, uh, it's a big group of players, and the next window will be about pruning that. We saw attempts towards the end, Jorginho uh, leaving the the the, the chaotic uh, mess that saw Ziyech not leave, but there was clearly a, a willingness to let him leave. And we'll see a few others go in the summer for sure. Um, Tom, it strikes me that this has been an, a, a remarkable gamble this window for Chelsea. If the, if if they they can't 
sort of go to these extent the, the, the extent of this spending again in the summer because they need to get players off off the wage bill. They need to have a bit of a fire sale. Um, we know obviously Nkunku is coming in the summer, but the, these players that they've spent an extraordinary amount of money on in the summer and now in in January, um, they th- this they have to be right. They have th- these these players all have to hit the ground running surely, and and this and that's an extraordinary test for what is quite a. A sort of, I wouldn't say inexperienced recruitment team because they've, they've, they have, they have obviously these, you know, Paul and Stanley's done a great job at Brighton, for example, but an inexperienced group in terms of working together and particularly with the manager. And I guess they're going to be proven right or wrong very quickly, aren't they? Yeah, very quickly. I mean, it's a, it's a mix of the whole approach from summer to winter, the two windows and the, that massive amount of money that they spent was, was, was a mix, right? It was it was players for the here and now, and for the uh, for the future as well. Guys like Nani Madueke, who went to PSV Eindhoven, and you you was an up and coming talent, but not quite on the radar for clubs to do now. Whereas Chelsea hiring someone like Joe Shields in recruitment, who's been credited with bringing loads of players like Jaden Sancho to the fore at Man City and and then um and then at, at Southampton uh spotting these talented players their job this recruitment team's job was to to kind of have foresight on what what is going to happen the players in the next year or so who are who are going to be the best in the world I mean the the problem is Will that all work together? That's the big. That's going to be the big issue. Yeah, I, I was thinking about this this week that when Chelsea entered the transfer market in the summer of 2021, that that group of players looked looked really really good. The only thing they were missing was a prolific centre forward who would who would hold the ball up and score them goals, and they got one. They spent a club transfer record that's just been broken on Romelu Lukaku, who is now in Milan, costing them a lot of money on wages each week because they're still supplementing that for Inter Milan. And they, I suspect, will struggle to get him off the off the books because of those wages, because they won't want to take a massive hit on the transfer fee that they paid for him. So looking forward, are they going to have a similar issue with these players? The, the wages aren't quite so high, but it's predicting it's predicting the future and no one <laughs> no one can do that. Lukaku was seen as the widely uh, as the missing piece of the puzzle. We would probably a few of us who said it on this podcast and and he wasn't. Tom Roddy, appreciate you joining us uh, with the latest on Chelsea, a big future for Chelsea ahead with all these great young talents as well. Appreciate it. Cheers, guys. Well, it's going to be an interesting future for Chelsea. Martin Ziegler writing in the Times that they would be in danger of breaching UEFA's financial fair play rules if they failed to qualify for the Champions League this season, already being placed on a watch list by European football's financial watchdog. Uh, UEFA's club financial control body announcing in September Chelsea were among 19 European clubs who only escaped action due to COVID-related allowances and whose spending would be closely monitored 
this season and monitored, I guess, is the only thing they can do because they can't stop it, can they? they keep the- up. <laughs> exactly. exactly. Um, but the question has come out this week from fans, really. Um, fans have said that those who are naysayers around what Chelsea are doing are just, just jealous, are just jealous, and that Chelsea actually deserve praise, that Clear Lake Capital and Todd Bowley have found a loophole that other clubs just wish they could exploit. Um, but I think everyone knew it was there, and I think other clubs have been using it. They just haven't condensed it into one singular window. And as Tom Roddy pointed out, that mainly because the use of um, amortization is probably going to be gone very, very soon. Is it irresponsible? Do they res- deserve praise? How do we view what Chelsea have been doing? Gregor? I don't know if it's irresponsible. I can't hand on heart and say it deserves praise, but I would just say it's a gamble, undoubtedly. Because look, the Premier League, this kind of ties in with the whole conversation about the Premier League's you know, stratospheric position in, reg- in relation to the rest of Europe as well. So the Premier League was already miles out in front in terms of being able to compete with bringing the best talent, pay them the most money. And a lot of clubs have already found that it's hard to shift players because they're on such high high salaries that anything, you know, a step even to Serie A, to AC Milan, for example, the biggest clubs in, in, uh, in, in Europe, some of the biggest clubs in Europe historically, they can't pay them anything like the same amount of money. So now Chelsea are on the top of the pile of the Premier League as well. And yes, we know that these are players that are, a lot of them are young and you'd expect would have you know, room for development and you know, appreciation and value. But that's, the, that's where the gamble lies. Because if not, then you're, you're having to cut quite significant losses. Like we're talking 500 plus million pounds on 16 players since, since the summer. If it doesn't work with Graham Potter until the end of the season, if he can't get a tune out of these players, can't get them into any good any any good form, mm. and can't get them into the Champions League, which is fact. well, exactly. I mean, that, that, you you would think that that is that's that's got to happen, and rightly or wrongly, you would think that that's the natural thing to do after backing. We're well, not backing him, but they've they have they brought have in, backed him. They have backed, backed him to an, to an extent. I mean, yeah, I, I don't know how I don't know how much this is them the club wanting the players versus the manager. No, but in, ter- but in terms yeah. of the, in terms in of terms the of off pitch recruitment, they've clearly backed him. They have brought yeah. in so many people that he's worked with they before. Change the structure of the club to support the new manager. It's huge backing. But if they can't, and if they're in a position as as, as we you know as, as as Tom was saying there, if they're in a position where they can't really go big in the summer because. They've kind of done all that now, and then they'd have to get lots of players off the off the wage bill. Then whoever comes in as a new manager is kind of got his hands tied with all these players that he he either has to get a tune out of himself or doesn't want. It's it's it, it's, 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 it's really That's a kind of that's a very valid point, but it's almost an old fashioned way of looking at at the way that clubs are run these days. It's, the manager has to deal with a squad that's at his disposal. It's ludicrous to suggest that Graham Potter has had, you know, the kind of sign off on sixteen players mm-hmm. arriving at half a million, you know, half a billion pounds worth of outlay. That's their investment and the investment of, as we say, a, a newly assembled recruitment team. Graham Potter is the guy who's the head coach who's expected to get a tune out of them, deal with all the internal politics, which is not going to be, you know, any uh, you know, no mean feat. But that's the job now of a, of the modern Chelsea manager, and that's that's also another intriguing, fascinating thing. That your instinctively, your reaction is that Graham Potter doesn't see this. Well, I don't know why. It, it, you know, that's just my instinctive reaction. We we were we were talking about this yesterday in the office, and and actually the one thing that probably stands in Graham Potter's favour is if um, if the Chelsea owners look across London to Arsenal, and see that Mikel Arteta, a manager who fans were calling for his head not that long ago a guy who was you know 
a, a rookie at the top level because he'd never had a, a managerial job before, but was backed to sort of lead a project for over a number of years. Um, and I know they've done it in a completely different way to what Chelsea are doing at the moment, but it might make them more reluctant to dispense with Potter and say, right, no, we'll give him two, three years. The problem, the problem is, is that they um they will have, they they they've got a significant accounting problem coming down the track yeah. if uh, if there is a you yeah. know and and the Champions League too. Pardon? If they don't make the if Champions they don't make the Champions League, League. Um, I mean it's it's um who knew that by the end of this deadline day football fans would all have to become accountancy experts? Amortization word of the year twenty twenty three early contender. The, the one 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 last thing to say about this is that it has been the, 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 this has been the direction of travel. Clubs now see rec- recruitment of players as the. You know, the, the, they're just hoarding assets essentially, and Chelsea have taken it to a whole new, whole new level. This has been happening for a long time. It's been happening in terms of Chelsea's academy system. This is they're developing assets and then they're hoarding them. They're farming them out. Manchester City have done the same. Mm. It's been going in this way, and Chelsea have turbocharged it, and they've found a new kind of. Well, it's not new as you say, but they've they've exploited a a loophole in the accountancy practices, and it's soon going to be closed. Uh, the only thing that I'd say on on Graham Potter. It's just, it's, I, I almost think his job starts now. And mm. how many new players he's got. Like you, it, 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 Yes, it has been going badly for Graham Potter so far at Chelsea. But you think now he's got a new squad. He's got a new group of players to get used to. They've all got to work out what it's like to play with one another. He's got to work out what, what's best for them. A lot of them haven't even played in the Premier League. So they have to work out you know, how they're going to fit into football in this country and whether they can handle it. And he's meant to guide them towards the Champions League. Obviously, he's never been in that position before as a manager. And he's got to to guide them towards maybe winning a title next year. I mean, to be honest, I almost chalk off the bad start that he's had and say, right, if this is your squad, now you've finally got the players. Basically, pre-season starts here. All these games till the rest of the season is to you, you getting this club in shape to go for it next season. Because I, I don't see them finishing the top four. I don't think even the Chelsea hierarchy is optimistic oh. as they are can really consider the way that Man United are going, the way that Newcastle are playing, this that, is, that they are going to be in the top four. This is the thing. I think it's. I think. I think it makes next season hugely interesting in mm. terms of. I genuinely think there's six, possibly seven teams that are could could be considered as as, as potential title contenders because part of the reason Chelsea has done this in there. Sure. Well, well, <laughs> no, but this, this is what I mean. Is that part of the reason why part of the reason why Chelsea are doing this is because they they the last five years have been dominated by Liverpool and Manchester City and somebody has needed to come in and close the gap to those teams which is what Chelsea are trying to do with their spending you've then got you know potentially Arsenal winning the title and what does that mean for them how will they strengthen will this be a kind of one season wonder thing or will they will they continue to be competitive you'd be foolish to suggest that Newcastle particularly if they're in the Champions League won't go further again and invest further and 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 strengthen that squad to a kind of more of a Champions League level squad, and then you've got a Manchester United team that are that are resurgent and are looking much much better and going to strengthen again. Going to have new owners so, and to have yeah. and 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 Liverpool, by the way, you know Liverpool are looking mm. for, for new investment as well, and and Liverpool, you know, putting themselves as the front runners for for Jude Bellingham. So I do think there's a um, you know I do I do I do think it's a very you know I haven't mentioned Spurs 
by the way. <laughs> I haven't mentioned Spurs. So when I said six or seven teams, um, probably six. six. But, yeah. <laughs> but it but it is this is what this is this is also the kind of the, the, the context for why mm. Chelsea's spending has been so big. Tom Olmer, I want to give you um a, a large word on this, your reaction to what we've been saying. But also of course you've reported on Enzo Fernandez and and, and and his meteoric rise. So you can tell us a little bit more about him and give us your reaction to what Chelsea have been doing, whichever order you like. Yeah, I, mean, I think there's a, a wider question here about the kind of the whether it's good for Chelsea or not down the line. Obviously, remains to be seen. I agree, there's it's a massive gamble, but I think there's a wider point to be made about um, what this means for the game generally, what it means for the Premier League, but also for the European landscape. I mean, you know, the, the figures for this window were incredible, even to be honest, without the sort of Chelsea chunk. I mean, the Premier League uh, spending went up from 295 million last. Uh, year in January to 800 million, so almost trebled basically. Whereas the rest of the four European leagues, uh, the spending went down from about 350 million to 220 million. That's all four uh, leagues combined. This was the first time ever that one club has, in the Premier League has outspent the, all the rest of the four leagues in Europe combined. And and that kind of imbalance, I think, is is something that I mean, I guess it depends on what your view of football is. I mean. You know, there are lots of Chelsea fans saying, as you say, you know, you're just jealous. Uh, this was your club, and this is the strength of of Chelsea. This is the strength of the Premier League. But I think if you believe that, you know, some of the beauty of football is in its unpredictability and its in its diversity, in the possibility that that any club can can spring a surprise, then I think you look at this kind of spending and you think that ultimately the end game here is something that probably we should all be slightly worried about. I mean, you know, eventually. The Premier League, you know, you can't you can't deny that right now the Premier League is the new Super League. You know, we've already seen some of the best players in Europe going to clubs like you know Bournemouth, Brighton, uh, Fulham. You know, just to kind of get their their taste of of the Premier League in the hope that perhaps they might then get another move to kind of one of the top six. What's the next step? Is the next step that kind of the best players from from Sevilla, from Napoli, start joining Championship clubs in the hope that maybe in a couple of years they might play in the Premier League? You know, I think generally. It's one thing to kind of think that this is a, a good thing for, for Chelsea, you know, this is a demonstration of strength. But I think if you have any kind of interest in the game, keeping its uh, its diversity and, and unpredictability, then I, then I think this is a slightly depressing thing, I think is probably the word I'd use. So let's see. Let's see. I, obviously, for Chelsea, it's a, it, it's a massive gamble. I, I mean, in terms of Enzo specifically... Most people say that he's a he's a very obviously an extremely talented player. You know, he, he, he's a, almost a bit of a throwback, really, a box to box midfielder. Uh, can play as a number eight in a four three three, but he isn't just a kind of creator. He can defend as well. He gets a, you know around the pitch very well, almost like a Kante who can also create and score. I think you know if you speak to people who know him well, who have seen him play a lot in, in Argentina and in Portugal. They definitely say that it feels like this deal maybe has happened a bit sooner than 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 would normally happen. That perhaps you know in normal in normal times, whatever they are, that, that this might have been another year or two, and also that the fee is hugely inflated. I mean, you know, I think most people kind of think it might have been a fifty sixty million deal. Chelsea are playing paying almost double that. Um, now, of course, there are some factors there. The World Cup obviously uh, made a massive difference. And, uh, you know, just the market in January, the fact that it was Chelsea, and they will probably say that it's worth it. You know, Chelsea will say, well, look, we don't mind overpaying for a player that we believe is going to be one of the best midfielders in the world for the next 10 years, you know? So uh, that's that's the kind of the, the market reality. But no doubt, you know, great talent, but um, probably Chelsea overpaid for a bit. 
think it's interesting that Graham Potter can only register three of these eight mm. signings in the Champions League. So that just gives a one small, you know, opens one small window into some of the difficulties he's going to have now. I also just think it's important to say this. I don't think it's just Chelsea trying to bridge a gap here to the to the other teams competing. I think these guys see themselves as disruptors. Mm-hmm. They're finding a new way. Well, you can't really call them that. They won the Champions League like two years ago. No, no. But, <laughs> no you, can't say that, you can't say there's a gap to bridge and then look it back and say they won the Champions League. I think they think there's a, this is a new way of going about recruitment. Oh, sorry. I, I thought you just... I don't mean Chelsea as a disruptor. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Club. The I mean the owners. The received wisdom about January over the last few years. I, I've worked countless transfer deadline nights where nothing has happened and it's been, you know, but, you know, you go, you know, reserve players joined someone on loan and that's the kind of, that's being trumpeted as the big thing that happens. Yeah. You know, I'm, I remember the, I remember one window, the big story being Odi and Agarlo to Man United was the, was yeah. the, was the main story, you know, it, it, and, and the reason for that is because clubs have been very, very reluctant to kind of spend big in January because they know they get ripped off and they know that they're perceived to be desperate. They pay massively overinflated transfer fees. Whereas, Chelsea have been going about this almost as if it's like, right, bring it on. We're gonna we're gonna pay these big sums if no one else is going to. And I think fans also are kind of reacting to this in a different way, which is to say, you know, Chelsea, one club spending more than half of the the European transfer spend in a window, would be you know, received in a totally different way had it been their previous owner, possibly. I mean he did spend a lot of money, Roman Abramovich. But obviously the owners of maybe Manchester City, Paris Saint-Germain or come lately, Newcastle United. Um, and we kind of don't react to this in the same way. Now, I'm not sure the intention is the same from the owners of, of Chelsea as it would have been for the owners of one of those other clubs. And maybe that's why our reaction in terms of the media is is slightly different. But it should should still send alarm bells ringing because oh. it is such a huge sum of money. Totally. I, I think, um, you know, Tom... Tom made made a good point about about the fact that you know the it does have a, a sort of worrying impact on our on our leagues. Um, I would say if people are concerned about the level of spending, come spend a day in League Two. Um, it's great. It's really good fun. Um, we don't have multi millionaires. We sometimes have parakeets invading the pitch. Um, assuming <laughs> human, no, yes, um, I know. Um, but uh, but but no. In 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 all in all in all seriousness, I think looking at Newcastle, and we'll talk about Newcastle. With the Carabao Cup final, I think there isn't that kind of if if Newcastle spend big, the you know the the accusation is sports washing, and um and we and we kind of we look at the motivations of the owners slightly differently, and I think actually Newcastle have been quite smart in the way that they've 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 gone about their recruitment because they've not kind of they've not spent record sums, they have spent a lot of money, they've spent a quarter of a billion pounds already since their takeover but they've done it in a very sort of measured piecemeal way which um which which has allowed um which is which has kind of allowed them to build more gradually and there as a result um it's actually making their rise look dare i say a little bit fairy tale not that i think it is but it is it that they're at that narrative is being able to develop which i think is sort of that's actually working perfectly for the saudi owners Right, okay, plenty still to come on the game podcast. Uh, We'll talk about Everton and we'll talk about some more of those transfers, just the best and worst of the transfer window before we go. Remember, if you're enjoying the podcast, uh, make sure you leave us a review, uh, rate us if you like, hit that notification button and you will not miss an episode. Hold up. 
iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Well, up next, I think we're going to react to the end of the transfer window um, and the best of um, and worst, if you like, in terms of the business that teams have done. But we, we almost have to talk about Everton first and foremost. Um, the only club to not have signed a single player. Um, real anger amongst the fan base, of course. It was seen as a crucial transfer window. Passes without a single signing. Anthony Gordon sold to Newcastle United in a deal that could eventually be worth £45 million as well and no incomings. Paul Joyce writing in the Times, uh, calling it a dereliction of duty. I think that's going to be my question. Fans outside uh, Everton's training ground at Finch Farm when the clock was ticking down in the transfer window, they were making their feelings known very vocally, of course. There were now more protests planned for Saturday's home game against Arsenal. The owner Farhad Mashiri, the chairman, Bill Kenwright, Chief Executive Denise Barrett-Baxendale are under even more pressure and the Director of Football, Kevin Thelwell, as well, under fire for having not got any deals done. All of it comes in the build-up to Sean Dyche's first match in charge. Is Joycey right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he is. I mean, I mean I, it, it's a, I'd encourage everyone um, listening to this to, to have a look at this piece today because it, it's, it, it lays out in quite good detail the um, you know a, 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 a trolley dash that you know supermarket sweep would have been proud of um, well, or not proud of because it ended up with a came on yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean you know, well, you know was it Tom Tom says about um, about egg barley and bowley whenever they go shopping yeah, they always come back with a full plastic bag I mean this is they've they've come back with a very very empty plastic yeah. bag here yeah. you know they 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 had after after selling Gordon they have forty eight hours to try and spend some of that money and. Uh, they had not a single player lined up, not even not even deals that they'd explored. It was they were going right. It was almost starting from scratch. Forty eight hours. They tried Camaldine Sulemana, who's gone to who chose Southampton for twenty two million. They tried Beto, the forward from Udinese. Um, they offered twenty two million, but wouldn't pay a release clause of thirty five million. They tried Olivier, Olivier Giroud on loan from AC Milan. They tried Ismail Assar from Watford on loan. They tried Anthony Langer on loan from Manchester United. They are they are trying. I think they they are trying to do Andre Ayew, who's a free agent now that the window's closed. They can go for free agents, um, and they're trying for Risco, who's um, whose whose deal to Union Berlin collapsed on deadline day in quite 
quite quite funny circumstances where he'd, I think he'd actually passed a medical and, mm. and then the deal collapsed. So that's where they are. Um, I mean, I think the only positive I can say is that I, I think Sean Dyche is quite a good signing. <laughs> but, but this, I, this is the thing with Everton. It's like, even if they had signed someone, you'd, you have no com- confidence that they would really have added much to their, yeah. to their survival cause. Last, no, they, this, they need to sign four or five on loan, probably. Mm. Yeah, but last year they signed uh, Dele Alli and Donny van der Beek and they did nothing to help them survive. So this is, this is my point. You've, you have no confidence in the way that the club's been run from top to bottom, really. Um, yeah, it would have provided a boost. It would have maybe stopped the protests happening mm. at the training ground or again on Saturday. But would the player in, in question really have necessarily helped them? I don't know. They need, like I said, we've said it over and over again, they really needed a striker. And ultimately, I just can't see where they're getting the goals. And for that reason, I think that John Deitch is, if he pulls this off, it's a miracle. Tom Olnick, your reaction? Yeah, I mean, you, you know, you look at the other clubs down there. Southampton signed five players. Bournemouth, I'm looking here, signed six. Wolves signed six. Everton, zero. I mean, you can only sort of think it's, it's either complete incompetence which is what it probably is, or you know, but it's also, you know, maybe even a little bit of complacency. You know, I, I wonder if Everton think that because they've been in the Premier League so long that they're just going to keep getting out of it. I mean, it's always kind of how how uh, how little can we do to to help our survival in this division and still try and still pull it off. I mean, it's it's incredible to me. You know, they launched that strategic review what it was a month ago, and that no one kind of said in that meeting seemingly look we're second bottom of the table we need to sign someone to to help us out i mean good luck to to sean dyche i mean it's it's a it's a it's a it's a monumental task he's got there and i think it's a really interesting appointment generally i have to say i mean we should talk about this yesterday about how you know it's very much kind of in vogue now for the premier league um clubs you know in maybe five ten years ago at this point in the season, most clubs would be appointing, you know, Sam Allardyce, Steve Bruce, Alan Pardew, you know, that kind of genre of coach, you know, sort of firefighters, if you like. But actually now, you know, you look at teams like Fulham, Marcus Silva, um, Thomas Frank, uh, Potter, obviously, De Zerbe, Jesse Marsh, you know, clubs in the bottom half of the Premier League now quite rarely go for sort of, I don't know, even firefighter kind of managers. And maybe that's slightly unfair on short dice. I don't really like that phrase. I think he did a fantastic job at Burnley over a very long period of time on a very, very small budget. So I'm fascinated to see how he does at a club like Everton. But, you know, we also have to remember that Everton, they wanted Bielsa seemingly, you know, that was their first choice to go from Bielsa to Daesh. You know, it seems to me it's, uh, you could hardly get um, a wider spectrum of of two coaches. So there's no plan. um, There's no ambition. You know, there's no uh, backing for the manager. And I think it'll be a miracle if, if they survive the second half of the season. I can I can totally understand the merits in going for Marcelo Bielsa. I, I can get that. I get that completely. And he, he did an amazing job at Leeds. But it's the it's the sort of it's the, it's almost a naivety of of thinking. It's the it's the fact that you you wind this back. Results aren't going well under Frank Lampard. You've got a seven week break for a World Cup. Marcelo Bielsa needs about that amount of time to work on his work on his squad and to get them up to speed, which is the reason why he ultimately didn't come to Everton. So if if this is a well-run club and they and they've got a plan and they know what they're doing, you go for a manager in Bielsa who's available. You get him in place before the World Cup. He works with the squad. They come back and it, and, and and it's fine. And then you've got a January window where you can then, even if funds are limited, and they are because Everton have have got are facing you know FFP problems. They they then go about it and get in the recruitment that that Bielsa wants. However, they leave it very late to sack Frank Lampard. They then try Bielsa, knowing full well that 
you know, they're not really going to be able to persuade him. And then they get they then get the manager in Sean Dyche, and then they have 48 hours left to get targets that are very different from the targets at the start of the window when Frank Lampard wanted Danny Ings. Um, so you've got, and it's, it's amazing, you just compare the two, you look at the striker targets at the start of the summer, they're going for Danny Ings, who is one type of profile of player. And then at the end of the window, um, they're going for, uh, for for Beto, who's a six foot four target man. It's it, the, the whole thing is completely muddled, and it just. I think you know Jamie Carragher has as 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 frequently said Everton are the worst run club in the country. Probably there's a few lower down. I think that are mm. quite quite badly run as well. <laughs> but but certainly of 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 clubs at the elite level, take some beating to be to be as badly run as they are. I think they look shell shocked. How can you be shell shocked when you were in the exact same position? A year ago. Mm. I mean, come on. Like, going into this season, you are planning for a relegation battle. You just about survived at the end of last year. There hasn't been massive spending, massive recruitment. You know there isn't much money available. Like, it's battened down the hatches time. You you actually have to look last summer and say, is Lampard going to keep us? I know he did it once. Is he going to keep us in the Premier League again? And if it's if you start the season badly, and I'm, again, 10 games we're talking, then you need to be looking at a new manager at that point in time. And it just is what it is. Lampard's record wasn't good enough. And if you're not going to spend the money, you need a great manager. And ultimately, they, they've taken too long now. Sean Dyche has basically been given a hospital pass. Mm. He comes in at the start of January, maybe they get players in. I mean, it's just so poor, so poor from Everton. And derelicts of duty is probably the right phrase. If they get relegated off the back of this, you're not going to be surprised. The thing as well that is, you know, I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't be surprised to see happening is if they do get relegated, Sean Dyche, they'll probably dispense with Sean Dyche, you'd think, mm-hmm. after relegation. It depends and then they on try it, and go from Bielsa again. No, I don't think. <laughs> I, I mean, genuinely, <laughs> I, I could genuinely see this happening because, you know, Leeds in, Leeds in the Championship, Everton in the Championship, two, two great, Institutions of of British football, and 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 be else, you know, they 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 try and go for the man they really wanted all along. Um, uh, it's I just I, I don't I don't have any confidence that they'll stay up, and I don't have any confidence that they'll make the right decisions when they're down there. But you know, for Everton fans, I hope they stay up, of course, because you know it's a but it's it is a it's a it's a nightmare. <laughs> no, I just I think Sean Dyche still gives them a good opportunity to get out of the championship. Obviously, he's done it a couple of times before, but he's a very steady character, and I it just gives them a good opportunity to stay up. First of all, yeah, 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 the yeah, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. yeah, they're only two. I think they're two points. Well, that's leading safety. That's, that's not. It's not. Oh, that's cut in his favour. That that's it. No one's cut adrift, and that's why it is. But I that, mean, when you speak, of, you know, when you speak to people who've worked for. For Deitch, it's like, you know, they've been in, Burnley were in this situation many, many times. They'd go through really barren spells and there was always a real calm and a kind of a belief that they could do something to turn it around. And there's no reason to, no reason to believe that he won't be able to, like, ask you a question. imbue that, imbue that in, in Everton's squad as well. I'll ask you a question. But there's a cliche about the new manager bounce. Um, is that, did you, it, when, when a new manager comes in, more often than not from your playing days, do you feel do you feel a bounce? Is there a kind of a do results up is there a little uptick in results or is that just us all kind of, you know, sort of being cliched and it's a myth? No, there is absolutely. I mean everyone everyone raises their standards when a new a new manager who's you know, who controls your feet walks into the building. So absolutely. But it's it never lasts that long. Mm. So that's the truth and I think we all know that. It's it is it is real. 
<laughs> because we're all it's the same as in any walk of life if a new a new boss walks in the building then you you want to do do your best to you know validate your position or impress them mm. and that's what happens in a football club too so Sean Dyche is sensible though and he will say look clean sheets you keep clean sheets you give yourself obviously an ideal opportunity perfect opportunity to get at least one point out of the game and enough of a platform that if you can nick a goal you get all three so there will be a focus on stopping conceding goals and hopefully you can build on that in, a, in an attacking sense but even then I don't see the attack being, you know, a particularly um, complicated style. I don't think he has time to create that. If they keep Dominic Calvert-Lewin fit mm. and they swing crosses in the box, they've got a chance. I, 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 if I, he's not fit, they're down. That's, I think that's it's pretty simple for me. I wouldn't be surprised if Anana is employed, employed in a more forward role, given his it's good show. he's kind of a free roamer, but he's got that physical power. Uh, he's got the ability to pop up with a goal. And at the moment, in terms of bodies, losing Anthony Gordon, by the way, so you know you've lost another attacker. I just think he will be he'll try and get him closer to the opposition goal. That midfield area, maybe we'll see two sitters, and the two sitters again, spaced on fitness. But it's whether you've got the quality. Well, I just don't see it in the Everton squad at this point. One thing that there is the kind of there is the shift in kind of training style and the kind of try and get more intensity out of the group we've seen that picture of Dyche sort of grinning as the players on his haunches looking knackered after the first training session um, and there was there was that fascinating detail about him getting to wear getting players to wear the shin pads in training and because uh, under Lampard they've been training in ankle socks and Sean Dyche said no no shin pads on I was going to ask you like what, what, what the most sort of bizarre like new introduction that the well, that, that, that's an indicator of like where, where the manager's priorities lie. You know? <laughs> yeah. you know, you're going to have to wear shin pads now, lads, because he'll be snapping into each other in training. Yeah. So, as I say, Gary Mixon, when he joined Nottingham Forest, that was one of his first moves. And when you were doing any kind of possession work and training or things like that, the, the, the focus was on winning the ball back more than, you know, as a priority rather than necessarily how good you are at keeping the ball. And look, that's just drilling down to basics that, he, that these guys you know, managers of this ilk believe are the fundamental things you have to do first to win games of football and that's undoubtedly the kind of manager Sean Dyche is. Okay, listen, just before we, we finish, I just wanted to ask you about, I was going to say winners and losers, but I might as well base it on the two ends of the table and just ask you which club you think had the best January. So when we look towards the top end of the table, you know, Manchester City lost, Joao Cancelo, Liverpool gained Cody Gakpo, um, Pedro Porro went to Spurs. Manchester United brought in three loans of out there course, Marcel Sabitzer, Jack Butland, who we're yet to see. Um, Arsenal, Jorginho coming in for 18 months from Chelsea. That could be a big one towards the, the top of the table and the title race as well. And I guess Newcastle United signing Anthony Gordon. Uh, Ashby as well, Harrison Ashby coming in from uh, West Ham United for a few million quid as a backup right back. Who do you see as the big winners in that, Tom Allnut? Well, they're not sort of top or bottom, but I have to say I think Brighton had a really good window just just for keeping hold of Caicedo, really. I think it would have been so easy for them to sort of say, well, look, 70 million, you know, what a massive profit we made on him in a very short period of time. He, the player obviously came out and said he wanted to leave. Um, I think it would have been very easy for them to kind of fold under that pressure. We've seen it happen to a lot of clubs over and over again. But I thought it was really, I don't know, admirable, brave, refreshing to kind of see them, you know, turn down massive, massive bids for him. Um, you know, Brighton, obviously, is sort of everyone's kind of favourite team almost, you know, and I think it gives them a great chance, hopefully, of sustaining what has been a really 
good first half of the season. Um, obviously, they lost Trossard, but even that deal, you know, I think you know, twenty-seven million for a player who wants to leave, who's you know not the youngest. You know, perhaps I think they got that done pretty quickly, and then they were able to hold on to Caicedo. I think is probably a much more important player for how they play. So. I thought Brian came out of the window sort of relatively unscathed, which I thought was a, a pretty good window for them. Uh, I mean, I think Spurs did, you know, reasonably good business. I think Porro is a really important signing for them. You know, I mean, obviously Spurs, for basically every single transfer window for the last 30 years, have been looking for a replacement for for Carl Walker. Um, they've gone through a few and spent about twice as much money as they sold Walker for, trying to, for trying to get someone who can play in that position. Um, Trippier obviously did a, a decent job, but the rest of them not so much. And and there is an idea, you know, that Porro could be the one who sort of unlocks this uh, this Conte system. We know how much he, you know, he loves a kind of attacking right wing back. So maybe that could be a, a really important signing for them in the second half of the season. Yeah, I don't think, apart from Chelsea, I don't think there were any spectacular windows. You know, I'm not, completely convinced that Jorginho signing for, for Arsenal. I think it's a bit of a, a stopgap, obviously. You know, that, that is what it is. Um, but whether or not he will provide ample cover for Thomas Partey, you know, if and when Partey uh, doesn't play, um, I'm not so sure. But uh, yeah, I think Brighton would be my would be my standout for, for not for signings they made, but for uh, for sales they they resisted. I'd probably go for Leeds. I think yeah. again, Weston McKennie in is, is a pretty remarkable signing, really. As we, you know, along the similar lines of we've been discussing about what it says about the Premier League status, and you're signing a young player, you know, from Juventus, uh, and he's joining basically a relegation battle with Leeds United, and the fact that you know, obviously, playing alongside Tyler Adams in midfield, he's he's uh, fellow US midfielder, and we've got Brendan Aronson as well, so there's kind of a lot of energy there, yeah, absolutely, yeah. and. Um, they also signed Ruter, the forward, and Max Wolber, a defender, and they needed desperately, I think. So I think it's been quite a big window for Leeds, and it's kind of there are fewer, fewer, fewer excuses for Jesse Marsh not to get a bit more, I think, from this. Yeah. In terms of results, I mean, there have been a lot of decent performances, and you know, all the energy, all the kind of hallmarks that we've we've we see of Leeds, uh, we still see on a, on a regular basis, but. I think they need to turn that into results. They there, have to I think. put the ball in the back of the net. Yeah, and basically. Bamford's back fit. You know, I think that possibly a decent second half of the season for Leeds. Uh, elsewhere, towards the bottom of the table, West Ham United, South Luzau, uh, free from Sao Paulo. Don't know if he'll play. Uh, Danny Ings, £10.5 million from Aston Villa. Loads of signings for Bournemouth. Dango Uratra from Lorient. Darren Randolph, a free from West Ham. Antoine Semenyo from Bristol City. Matthias Vigna from Roma. Ilya Zabani from Dinamo Kiev for almost £20 million and Hamid Traore on loan from Sassuolo. Uh, plenty of moves for Southampton as well. Mislav Orsic, Dinamo Zagreb, Carlos Alcaraz, Racing Club. Uh, Jan Bednarek uh, ended his loan, went back to Aston Villa, but they did bring in James Bree, Kalmadin Sulemana and Paul Onuochu. I hope that's correct. Apologies if not, uh, From for around £19 million from Genk. Um, Nottingham Forest as well. Lots of signings for them. Gustavo Scarpa. Danilo came in. Chris Wood came in. Felipe from Atletico Madrid. John Joe Shelby. And a Kalo Navas. <laughs> <laughs> Which is quite remarkable. Loads of moves for Wolves as well. Matthias Cunha came in. Mario Lamina. Pablo Sarabia. Craig Dawson. Joao Gomez as well. And Dan Bentley came in from Bristol City. So loads of deals. And this is maybe points to why it's so bad for Everton being done for clubs in that relegation battle. 
Yeah, I mean, I'd say the big losers for me, apart from Everton, were Tottenham Hotspur, whose squad just isn't good enough. The results aren't good enough at this point in time. Yes, they've needed a right wing back for a long time, um, but there there were probably a lot of other areas of the team that also needed to be addressed that weren't, uh, in particular midfield creativity. So I, I think um, their season will probably go from, from bad to worse, to be perfectly honest. Bottom of the table, do you have a view, James, on who did well, who did badly? Um, I was going to say West Ham did well, uh, just because I think Danny Ings is a terrific player. And and uh, and I think it's also, it's one of those signings that it, it lots of clubs down there were looking at him and it takes him away from their rivals as well. Even if he's not, I mean, I know he's, he's picked up a knee injury straight away, so there's not going to be a... You know, not an immediate guarantee of goals, but he but he he is a proven goal scorer at this level, and that's what West Ham were lacking in the first half of the season. So, on those terms, I, th- I think you think he's a really good signing. Um, but he also stops an Everton signing him, or it stops someone else signing him. I also think Southampton have had a had a brilliant brilliant window in terms of um, the players they've brought in. I'm very excited by Sulemana. I think he's a it, it, brilliant. He's been brilliant for Ren down the left wing. Um, he's got a great. I was reading. I was reading a great piece about him. He came through the Right to Dream Academy in Ghana, um, and uh, he called himself Gaucho when he was a kid because he like he was like I'm going to be the next Ronaldinho, which was fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> it was great. Um, and he and he went to um, he went to Denmark first because um, I think I think the team he was he played for in Denmark had a partnership with this academy in Ghana, so. Um, and he's he's kind of he's found his way to the to the Premier League, and it also just you know getting in Mislav um, Orsic as well. I think it's a, quite a shrewd signing. Um, it doesn't you know they've spent what they've spent close to close to fifty million. That's not the sign of a club that's resigned to the fact that it's going down. I think a lot of people looked at the Nathan Jones appointment and thought, well, here's a manager who might make us competitive in the Championship if if the worst happens. But I think actually no, it's again it's a it's a, we've talked about project managers. It looks like they've got someone who's kind of going to lead the next phase, and they've they've backed him quite considerably. Okay, go on, Gregor. I just think the Jorginho one might be all right. Actually, <laughs> <laughs> I, agree, I think I agree. I think it's a, I think it's a really good sign. It's a short, yeah, it is a short term fix. But the well, we've said I've said on many occasions, parties one player they can't afford to lose, and I know it's a short term. You know, I think it's was a blow to ribs. Mm. Anyway, I don't think he's going to be out for that. No, no. They do need cover there, particularly with El Nene's injury. Um, Sam Conga's gone on loan as well. Yeah, and if you're and Arsenal essentially now play with one kind of holding midfielder because Jack is mm. is in front because Odegaard plays in front and Zinchenko often comes in and, and supports. But Jorginho's always been best as a as a sole kind of pivot. Um, and Arsenal are a team now who are you know heavily their position dominant. Um, and that's where he that's where he flourishes. So, uh, you know, I think it could be a decent signing. There was an interesting detail that uh, since 2015 they've signed five players over the age of 30, and four of them have been from Chelsea. Now. <laughs> <laughs> Pere, Cole, Cole, David Luiz, and William. So yeah. he's got he's he's got. Check you know, was good. Not much to live up to, actually. <laughs> Check was good. David Luiz and William. Was, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I do, I do think it, I agree. I do think it's a pretty positive signing. To be perfectly honest. You're talking about somebody who's won a lot, who's experienced yeah. um, to add something to a title race, who maybe has cost them a little bit more than they wanted. But remember, they were offering, you know, 70, 80, 90 million pounds for Moises Caicedo, who's very inexperienced. You know, in terms of the next six months, um, maybe Caicedo 
is the better player right now in terms of what we're seeing, but in terms of the impact, in terms of the group, in terms of what they bring maybe as a sub, which let's be honest, Jorginho probably will be, I think he's probably going to be the better in that regard. That's it. Like when, like since when did Arsenal make signings to bolster a squad in January? Like I, I remember. Well, they tried. Well, I remember. They t- tried with Mudrick and they tried with Caicedo. So these are these are not these are not bad fallbacks. This shows, the, this shows their ambition. I think. I think this shows this newfound ambition where. You know the fact that they're they're going to go for Declan Rice in the summer. You know this is this is the this is the thing they've they've they were. I think it shows their ambition that they were prepared to bid seventy million for for uh, for Caicedo. You know I know Brighton were very insistent that they weren't going to sell, but as a club you can only try. And I find and, and the, but the other thing on 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 uh, you know it's not that long ago. I remember Arsenal making a panic signing of Kim Kallstrom on loan. Yeah. You know, and it's like this is this clearly shows that the ownership is now. They are fully behind what Arteta is doing. They believe they can win the league, and if they can't get the top top targets, they will go for established Premier League players. Okay, it's the thing to say about Jorginho. So, it's just that maybe you know he hasn't necessarily been the the Jorginho that maybe we sort of he was a couple of years ago. I, I'm, I'm not sure that, but that, that is the as you say, it's the nature of a of a stopgap short term fix. I mean, you you know you talk to clubs about kind of these sort of signings. They say, yeah, we would. We want the decision to make. I mean, Liverpool had this decision in the last summer. They were kind of saying, "Do we either keep our powder dry and and, and wait for you know Bellingham, De Jong, and spend the big money on, on those players, a long term player who we really believe in, or do we bring in a an Artur or you know someone who can basically just kind of and it hasn't worked out for them, and that's effectively what Arsenal are, are doing here. I mean, you know, I think you know as as a kind of cover player, fine, you know, and, and if it gets them to the summer where then they sign someone like Declan Rice, for example, then then that's that's uh, that's job done in, in some regard, you know. So, I, one other player I'm really looking forward to is, is Harry Suter, by the way, going to Leicester for Stoke. Second, no one top. <laughs> one of my favourite players for the World Cup, just <laughs> clattering everyone all the time. I'm really looking forward to him getting stuck into Jao uh, Felix or Anthony <laughs> sometime soon. Uh, yeah, we'll see if he does. Okay, all right, gentlemen, appreciate you being with me today. Thank you all for listening as well. And we'll be back with you on Monday. Big games to come this weekend in the Premier League. We'll see if Spurs without Antonio Conte on the touchline. I wish you well, Antonio. Uh, can muster something against Manchester City, maybe put a spanner in the works in terms of the title race. Uh, we'll be reacting to that and much more on Monday. We will see you all then. So thank you for listening. Remember, you can subscribe to the game online, times.co.uk forward slash the game. Uh, download the Times app if you want more of our award-winning journalism as well. And of course, pick up a paper. VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, Calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone.